Good morning. Wow, glad that you're here this morning. Grab your Bibles and your devices. Today we are back in our series in the book of Ephesians. Thank you, Erica, for reading this morning so well to us today, the text. And so we want to work our way through chapter 3 together, or a portion of chapter 3 today. Um, I want to say that Nathan did an amazing job as we're coming out of our Better Together series. And so what an amazing two weeks that we had together as well. And for those that came together to connect themselves with with community groups last Sunday night, man, I'm super thrilled about that. So when I look at this word, this text that was written, I'm reminded again, as we go back into the book of Ephesians, that the book of Ephesians is a letter. It's one complete work, even though divided up in chapters and verses by the compilers of our current scriptural canon, that it is one complete work. And so I think in in light of that, then we have to go back and tie chapter 3 into chapter 2. Because if we just jump right into chapter 3 this morning, I think it's sort of like getting an email, you know, a very important email, and you decide that you want to start right in the middle of the email and sort of sort of uh, just blow past the first part of it, and it doesn't give you proper context. And so what happens is that you end up maybe getting the wrong idea. And so we want to go back and we want to tie this back into chapter 2 as well, because what we say here about context is context is everything. So Ephesians chapter two, I'm just going to read two verses to you for a moment, and then we'll jump back to chapter three. Ephesians two, verse 15 says this. It says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he talking about Christ might create in himself one new man, and that is us, the church. We talked about that a few weeks ago. In place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The word hostility, a very strong word that Paul uses, but very applicable to what he's going to talk to us about, I think, in this in this chapter, chapter 2, and as well as chapter 3. So what Paul is saying is this. What truly happens to you and I in this work of redemption, in this work of the gospel within our lives, is that we become a completely new race of beings. Is exactly what he's saying, that we become a new race of beings. That one new man in place of two is what he says. But it's important for context purposes to realize the church at Ephesus and who he's writing to. He's writing to a church that's very much a multicultural church. It's made up of both Jews and Gentiles and perhaps other uh, uh, other people from all different kinds of backgrounds as well. But yet what we realize is that this is the work of the gospel, that it brings people of different backgrounds and different thinking together And so what I realize about the gospel is this. The gospel doesn't erase our culture. Understand that. But what the gospel does, it creates a whole new culture for us, is what the gospel does. A new race of people, Paul says. For when Christ was raised from the dead, what we realize is that he was not raised as a Jew or as a Gentile, but a completely new man glorified in in his body. So our concept, I think, sometimes of redemption for our lives is that we think of ourselves as the same model of car, just God puts a new paint job on us, right? They sort of, you know, somewhere inside of us is the same workings, but yet we have this new paint job. So we look really good on the outside, but there's not a lot of things that have changed inside of us. Can I tell you, if that's the definition that you have chose for the gospel and the work of the gospel in your life, and that has become your identity, can I, I would just say to you, that is totally opposite of what Paul teaches us, completely opposite of what Paul teaches us. Because what Paul says, that what has taken place in our life through redemption of the gospel is able to kill the hostility. And just because I am the same model but with a new paint job, that doesn't have the ability to kill the hostility. It doesn't. So when I thought about the word hostility, 
I thought, well, there are two applications to it. One is the hostility or the word wrath between that of creator and creation. That you and I miss the mark with God is what we had done. And so we have this division or this opposition between that of our creator and we his creation. And so what redemption does, it comes and it covers you and I with the perfection of his son Jesus. So when God looks at us, he looks at us through that perfection. So what that means is this, that when I am redeemed, I am now good with the father. Yeah, I'm now good with the father. But there's also another aspect of the hostility that Paul is talking about. He's talking about the hostility between that of Jews and Gentiles and their differences. And what I realize is that when Jesus shows up in our lives, he makes everything new, doesn't he? Can you say amen to that? That he makes everything new, regardless of who we are, regardless of our background or our ethnicity or our religious upbringing, that he makes everything new. And so this is the work of redemption within our lives. The creation of one new being results It results in peace because of Christ's death and resurrection. And so I made some, I I just, in my journal, I begin to look at this and realize, how deep does this go in our lives, you know? How, how, How much of a change does this bring within our lives? And what I realize is this, that Christ has removed anything. Christ has removed anything that would have made us feel superior over anyone else in this room. Realize that. He has removed anything that would cause you to feel superior over anyone else in this room. That's how deep this goes, the work of the gospel in our life. That he has not only done that, but he has made everything insignificant. Not abolishing that of our culture and our differences, but he has made everything insignificant that distinguishes you and I from one another. Is what he's done. It is amazing that Christ has given us something so glorious in common. It far exceeds all our differences in this room this morning. It does. And I think that you can grasp a lot of nuances of that of theology today. But if you miss this truth, if you miss this fact of the working of the gospel and redemption within our lives, then what I believe Paul is saying to us, then you have a very shaky foundation spiritually if you have missed this understanding today because with Jesus there's only one kind of sinner and that is that they're dead that's it there's only one kind of sinner and they're dead and there's only one kind of believer and they are alive in him fully adopted an heir of the kingdom and the heir of the father inheritance of the father that is and that is what and that is how God sees us understand that It makes life somewhat simple, doesn't it? Yeah. In a world that is extremely convoluted, in a world that we see so many things that confuse us at times, it really comes down to this very simple thing that God sees one kind of sinner and that they are dead in their sins and one kind of believer that they are alive in him. And that is the way that that humanity is in this world. It is. And so when we take that and then we connect that understanding of the work of the gospel, and that is that you and I have not just had a new paint job, you know, uh, on the on the same old model of who we are, but he has created a new being and he's brought us together in that commonality of being recreated in him. When we take that and we we connect that to chapter three, it gives us a real Real powerful understanding of what Paul says to us. So Ephesians chapter 3. But I want to start in the middle, right? I want to be that guy that reads the email starting in the middle for a moment. And then we'll go back to verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 10. It says this. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That the unified church, the the new, this new race of beings that we are because of the redemptive work of Christ in our life is the vehicle. It is the mechanism that God has designed to bring the gospel and to bring life to a dead world. 
Understand that, that Christ is made known. Christ is made known through our unity in the middle of all of our differences. He is. That he is made known in that unity, even though you and I are different in this room. And when I, 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 I began to sit in that for a moment, what I realized for all of us who are following Christ, and if you're here this morning and you're not a Christ follower, I am so glad that you're here and you get to hear the story about the gospel and about redemption today. And so simply put on your ears and listen to what God is saying to you as well. For those of you that have come to Christ and you are following Christ to the very best of your ability as the Spirit empowers you, Can I tell you that involvement in Christ church is not an option to you? It's not an option to you because this is what God is building in this earth, his church. Understand that. And you are absolutely a key part to all that God is doing. I heard someone once say that a believer is like a brick. You say, Mark, that is not necessarily a compliment, is it right? A believer is like a brick, and we're the building material that God uses to build his church in this world so he will be known. Can I? I would, I would say to you, I disagree with that. I really do. I disagree. Concept, yes. Material, no. I don't think you're a brick, okay? Here's what I think you are. I think you're a rock. You say, Mark, what is the difference? You've gone from bad to worse, right? No, because what I realize is with a brick, they're all uniform. They all look alike. They all sort of fit in the same way, right? But you, you are uniquely different. Everyone in this room is uniquely different. You have different shapes and curves. Some of you are full of pits like this rock, and some of you are not, right? Yes, But yet we are all uniquely different and the beauty and the majesty. In fact, we're going to talk about the word mystery is that God takes this, not this, but God takes this and he fits this all together perfectly in the church as one body, even though we are different and he brings us together. So he is made known in the world. Wow. That is the work of the gospel. That he takes us all in our differences and and just miraculously puts us all together so he is made known in the world today. So here's the thing. You're not a brick. Aren't you glad? You're a rock. Yeah, yeah. A very precious rock, a special rock is what you are unique. You all have different gifts. You do. So I want to even tie this sermon, this teaching to what what Nathan even taught to us last week as well. That we are the body and Jesus is the head. And I want to touch on this for a moment before we move on. And so I I thought, well, how, how do we talk about that for a sec? And that is that if your elbow itches, okay, now just bear with me for a moment, right? If your elbow itches, your brain doesn't send some kind of superpowered brain juice to your elbow to stop it from itching, does it? That's not the way it works. What does your brain do? Your brain fires with all of these multiple thousands, if not millions of, of neutrons in, and it sends a signal, what? to the hand on the opposite arm of the elbow that itches, right? It sends, it sends a signal to this hand, very different and, and, and not looking like the elbow on the opposite arm. And it tells the hand to reach over and scratch the elbow on your other arm. Have you ever been amazed at how, how just detailed, how detailed and how complicated you are made by God? It is an amazing thing, isn't it? And what I realize about that is that you and I are all different and he puts us all together. So what I would say to you is this, you fit here. I want you to hear that. That you fit here and you don't have to look like this, but you can look like this. You fit here. So let's jump right into chapter three. Here it is. This is good stuff. I'm excited. 
15 minutes to just get through the introduction, right? So, boy, you know, well, Mark's back in town, so we should have brought a lunch. So here it is, right? Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I underline what Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul is extremely clear here for a moment that that he is a recipient of God's grace, a steward of God's grace. He is not the source of grace. Understand that. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. Paul doesn't write briefly, but he's a preacher. So he says those kinds of things, right? Correct. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It sounds confusing, but it's not. Give me a moment to work through this text with you. For this reason, I, and I left a blank after I, so you can actually insert your name there, your name, because I want you to own the story. I want you to own this that Paul is saying today. you got to find yourself in the middle of all of this. And, and for what reason is he talking about? What reason? It's the work of the gospel in his life. This is not just something academic that Paul knows about. This is something extremely personal within his life. It's the gospel that fuels his love for the church at Ephesus and what he does for the kingdom. And what he's saying is that no matter how much I know, if I forget this one thing, this dynamic work of the gospel within my life, and it found me dead in my sins, and now that I'm alive in Christ... If I forget that, then all the other things that I know are absolutely useless. The fact that I was dead and I am now alive. It's the reason that I can write these things to you, is what he's saying. That's the reason. And then he says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Listen, Paul, as he writes this book along with other books... He is a prisoner under house arrest in Rome, waiting for his trial before Caesar. Why? Because he was preaching in Jerusalem near the Temple Mount, and his sermon was so powerful it started a riot, is what it did. Isn't that great? Yes, that's a sign of a really good sermon if you get up and riot. So here is the thing. He's sitting in his in this home in Rome waiting waiting for his trial before Caesar. Why does Paul get that? Because Paul is a Roman citizen. But house arrest means that that he is chained to Roman soldiers at night, usually one on each side so he would not escape. But during the day, Paul is able to roam free in the house under the supervision of those Roman soldiers. And that's absolutely understandable. All of this because he's a Roman citizen. The point, and I I believe what Paul is saying to you and I, is that as free as he was to move around that house, he still saw himself as a prisoner, not of Rome, but of Christ. Because Paul knows that Jesus is Lord of his life, yes, absolutely. But he also knows that Jesus is Lord over everything, everything, sovereign and good in all of his works and ways over all things, that Jesus is in control here, even when it looks like that the Romans are in control. So what Paul is saying is that if I'm going to be a prisoner, let me tell you who I'm a prisoner of, that I'm a prisoner of Christ, bound to him by his grace. It's not just a perception that Paul has, because we know that perception can be perceived as reality in our life. But this is reality. Understand this, that the chains that were on him do not define him because he is defined by Christ because of what Christ has done in his life. God is sovereign and God is good even when circumstances may not appear that God is sovereign or God is good because God is working a greater plan. And Paul says, hey, don't feel sorry for me because God is working a plan on your behalf. That's what he's saying. Reva and I love to go to the theater 
and we we love plays and things like that and and so what I realize when you go to the theater and you sit in the office there is the the drama presentation on the stage and then there's a curtain and then there's some other event that takes place behind the curtain that in any kind of theatrical presentation there's two events that are happening. What goes on in the, on the stage in front of the curtain that you can see and what goes on behind the curtain that you cannot see. Both very important, absolutely important. And what I realize what Paul is also saying to you and I is this, hey, God is doing something here. You may not see and you may not understand, but realize this is God's plan being worked out on your behalf. How can I have that kind of attitude? How can I have that positive attitude that that Paul would have in this moment where he finds himself confined in that? How does that happen? Because he understands the nature and the character of God. That's why he says, for this reason, for this reason, I see myself as a prisoner of Christ and not the Romans. Why? Because I have experienced Christ on the road to Damascus, that God did something in my life that no one could ever do in my life. I'm not the same model with a new paint job. I am a new being in Christ. It's not just that Paul is a real positive guy. Understand that. It's far more than that when he makes these kinds of statements because the the energy behind these statements are drawn on his knowledge of what Christ has done in his life and who he is and his identity in Christ. And that is he is a new being. That's what it is. He says in the book of Philippians chapter 3, in verse 10, he says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. It's more than just it's more than just knowing him. That's truth. And we have to have truth in our lives. There's no doubt about that. But it's experiencing him. And that's the work and the power of the spirit within us. We have to have both truth and spirit. They work hand in hand together. Someone once said, very cliche-ish, but I just want to say it, and I love it. Someone said this, that truth without spirit, truth without spirit dries us up, right? But that of spirit without truth blows us up, correct? Yeah, yet truth and spirit together grows us up. And I, and I like that. And I think that's the reality of our spiritual experience with God, that we have to have both truth and experience. So Paul is not talking just out of truth. He's also talking about out of that of experience, about the work of the spirit in his life to change him, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection Not the resurrection, just the resurrection that is to come, but that of the resurrection that Paul has experienced personally in his life through the power of the gospel. And so as I focus upon that in my mind, in my heart, in my prayer life, in my devotional life, in the moments of my life that are good, and in the moments of my life that are not so good, as I focus on what God has done for me in my life, What I realize that I may be locked up by the Romans, Paul says, but that is not the thing that defines me because deep within my being, I know whose prisoner I am and things that may appear like they are are not as they are is what he's saying. I love this. And then he says how the mystery was made known to me. Paul's making it very clear this thing about grace and redemption is not his idea. He, he's stressing that this is God's idea. It's not just it, it's not that at all that God gave this revelation to him. He's the messenger. Listen, when you are a messenger of the gospel, it is a costly calling. Realize that that it is a costly calling to speak life to things that are that are dead. And so here's Paul, that he is the Hebrew of Hebrews, Scripture calls him. He is a Pharisee. He is a former persecutor of the church. And God makes him the main minister of the mystery. That's what he is. 
He is the main minister of the mystery. Well, what is this mystery that God is talking about through Paul? It's the mystery is the working of the gospel and bringing specifically Jews and Gentiles together is what it is. That's the mystery of bringing Jews and Gentiles together, not just in the same building. No, but as one body. That's the mystery, because that is a work of a sovereign God that only God can do to accomplish that through the work of the gospel. That is what a sovereign move of God looks like. So as we, you know, peruse through YouTube and and social media platforms and we see these moves of God in our current culture and we see these revival moments that are taking place all across our nation. And, and I and I and I've often thought, you know, God, oh, this is amazing. And this is truly a sovereign move of you in, in all of that. But Lord, how do we weigh those things? Right. How do we weigh those things, God, to know that these things are of you? And what I realize is when I look at this text and about the mystery that God works in the life of the church of Ephesus, it is a sovereign move of God. So this is a great way to weigh those things that take place even in our culture today, because an awakening, a revival, a sovereign move of God does the impossible. Realize this. It does the impossible because what it does. And one of the defining factors of those moves, it always brings different people together through the power of the gospel and unites them in Christ. And so Paul uses the word mystery. Why does he do that? He likes the word. He uses the word six times in the book of Ephesians. He uses the word 21 times in all of his epistles that he has written. So he really likes the word. He does. So why does he use the word mystery? Well, I want to tell you. Because when you go to the Old Testament and you begin to read the prophecies of that of the redemptive work of the gospel... Places like the book of Isaiah, chapter 56, you find there prophesied that of the redemption or the salvation of Gentiles. It's very, very clear when you read Isaiah 56, it's a prophecy about how God works in the lives of Gentiles to that to save them. But what you don't find in the Old Testament, as you look through the prophecies, you don't find a prophecy where it talks about the coming together of Jews and Gentiles into one church. You don't find that or one body or them being called fellow heirs, as Paul calls them. This is revealed through the apostles. It is. Yes. Some people are like, well, hey, we're really good with with, you know, Gentiles and we're really good with with that of Jews. We just don't want to worship together. Right. So let there be the first church of the Gentiles over here on one side of town. And then they're going to be the first church of the Jews on the other side of town. Thus, why Paul never planted churches like that. You never find in any of his epistles and any of his writings in, in and never through even through the book of Acts. You never find any church that's planted where it's planted specifically like that. It's not. That's not the way that it happens. It's not because a sovereign move of God brings creation together in their differences. It meshes us together in the gospel. I, I wrote this week in my journal. God is not moving if people are not meshing, really. And, and I don't know how spiritual that sounds, but it's true when you take this as the weight as the scale, as the litmus test of a move of God, and, and you look at the book of Ephesians and what is happening in the church of Ephesus, and that is that he's bringing these people of differences together, he's meshing them together, and they're becoming one body of Christ, fellow heirs. And when you look at the Old Testament, we find that, again, prophesied that Gentiles can be saved, yes, but not that they come together with Jews for one church. No wonder when these letters were read to these congregations, man, you could feel the tension in the room. You could. Because here you have the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Pharisee, the former Pharisee. This is Paul 
who at the stoning of Stephen, he holds the cloak of all the people that are throwing rocks and stoning Stephen that day so they can just get a better, a better aim with their stones. This is the same guy, and we forget that sometimes. And he's preaching to the Jews who are thinking the Gentiles must physically look like us to become Christians. And you have the Gentiles who are coming straight across the street from the temple of Artemis who have prostitutes as part of the of the liturgy of their worship at the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. And they're all showing up at church together and they're probably bringing some prostitutes with them. And you want church to be sanitized and clean and, and, and just all everything in its own place. No, God's church has always been designed to be messy. Understand that. And they're having a potluck at the church of Ephesus And what happens? The Gentiles show up with pork barbecue sandwiches and non-kosher hot dogs. Right? And things go crazy. And all of a sudden they're brought together by the power of the gospel. If you start praying for a sovereign move of God, and I don't know if you're doing that or not, I have been praying for that for over two years. I, a sovereign move of God. Can I warn you, be careful, because God will show up, but he will show up with all of his broken children. Understand that. Those that are broken and bruised and sinful and accused, angry and hurt, imperfect. The list could go on and on. I ran out of space on the paper to put it all. Jews, Gentiles, followers of Christ, followers of Artemis. He redeems us. He resurrects us. He recreates us into a new race of beings. And that's called the church. That's it. It's messy because it's a mystery. Is what it is. The word mystery is the perfect word as the Holy Spirit moved upon Paul to use that word to describe what God was doing at Ephesus. Because if we can fully explain it, then I'm not sure it's God. I want God to, to, uh, to design us, to, to, to design us as a church, as a local body and part of the greater body of Christ to look like Ephesus. Mark, that's dangerous. And I don't know if I want to be a part of that kind of church. Then I think what you're really saying is you don't want to be a part of the church is what you're actually saying. Because even Paul writing in a geographical context to Ephesus, the greater context of this covers the body of Christ, the church. I could talk about this for a long time, but I will read more verses to you. Verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of this gospel. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. And so there are two thoughts. The second thought is this. The gospel is the balancing agent of our lives. It's the balancing agent of our lives that we're all equally in this room and in the body of Christ, equally partakers of the promise of Christ through the gospel. The only the only thing that separates you and me as even a pastor is 15 feet. Because I think I measured it one day, 15 feet of green carpet. And that's it. Isn't that amazing? That's it. And one, two, three, four, five steps, I guess, is it. That's it. And so I, I thought about this a lot. That. The mystery is that believing Jews and Gentiles in Ephesus were joined together into one body and one church, that no one is privileged, yet all were privileged through Christ. 
Paul says is through the gospel. It's through the gospel. And only through the gospel can we find the equity that we desire between humans. We can legislate, and, and, and I'm not saying that legislation is wrong in any way, so don't misunderstand what I am saying. But what I do realize is that legislation does not have the power to accomplish what the gospel of Christ has the power to accomplish through the work of Christ on the cross. Because legislation can adjust our behavior or attempt to adjust our behavior, but what the gospel does is the gospel changes our hearts, creates a new being, And it is a gift of God's grace. So Paul calls himself a minister here. He does. And and I I, I begin to think, what what you know, what is he referring to? It's a title of service, not a title of 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 exaltation. It's it's not at all. And, And when I looked at the word, the work, the word actually means table server is what it means. That's what minister means. It means table server is exactly what it means. It means one who beckons to the call of the customer. It's a, a wearer of the apron. It's a girder of the towel around them. It's a servant. It's a prisoner of Christ is what he's saying. A recipient of grace, a sinner made alive through Christ. And any minister that defines themselves outside of being a prisoner of Christ should repent because it is the gospel that is the catalyst for everything in our lives. Verse 8, to me, Paul says, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden of the ages in God who created all things. Though I am the least of the saints. This is the guy that has written the biggest chunk of the New Testament for us. And these are his words, though I am the least of the saints. This is not some false humility. So don't don't get confused with what Paul is saying. Understand, this is a position of Paul's heart because long before we are ever perceived humble because of our actions and our words, that work of humility takes place within inside of us. It takes place within our own hearts as we simply hold up our own lives and our hearts up to the gospel and what God has done to us. That humility is not possible outside of an understanding of the gospel work within our lives. Charles Spurgeon says it so capably. He says, the fuller a vessel becomes, the deeper it sinks in the water. A plenitude of grace is a cure for pride. Arrogance. Arrogance is an undeniable sign in our lives of a lack of understanding of the personal work of the gospel within us. And if you are arrogant, then I would, I would just say to you today that that is sinful and you need to repent of your arrogance. And I would say to you that if you place that arrogance in front of the gospel and what God has done for you in your life, that that arrogance will melt away in the presence of of the redemptive power of Christ. Because it's the gospel of Christ that fuels what we have done, what we do in this life. So Ephesians 3 and 13, last verse. Last verse, it says this. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you which is your glory. Paul's words to us as he, as he winds up this portion of the scripture of verse 3, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, 
which is your glory. Not to lose heart. What a powerful thought that he ends with with us today. But, But what is he talking about? And if you take that in context of what he's saying, and the context of all of this is regarding how you fit into the body of Christ, and you lay that over that statement, not to lose hearts, I think he's speaking to us in those moments when we feel like we don't fit in, when we feel like that we can't fit into the body of Christ, when we realize that we look like this, right? And we don't look like this. And we're not sure that how we can ever make this look like this, correct? And so how do I fit in? I think in the church of Ephesus, you had pain on both sides of the pews, right? For the Jews, the price to accept Jesus as the Messiah was beyond what most people could ever dream. At the loss of family and friends, professions, everything. And to the Gentiles on the other side of that aisle, they're thinking, where they looked at the Jews, but how will we ever look like that? And how can we ever change to look that way if that's the way that you become a Christian? So how do we fit in? And the Jews are struggling to fit because of their culture and background, the Gentiles are struggling to fit because of where they've come from as well. And in the middle of all of this, God bathed them with the gospel. I think what some of you need to realize is that God didn't design you to be a brick. He made you unique with your own giftings, with your own personalities, and with your own opinions. Because if the church was built with this, then Paul has used the word mystery 21 times incorrectly to refer to what God has done here. But when you realize that this is what God has used to build a church, then it is a sovereign move of a loving and gracious God who says to you, Jew or Gentile, whether you worship at the temple or whether you worship at the temple of Artemis, whether you grew up keeping all the rules, or whether you served as a prostitute in the temple. That from the very beginning, he designed you to fit here. That's it. That's always been God's heart. That's always been God's design for us. So he says, with all of your rough edges, with all of your 
unrefined ways. All of your chipped edges and brokenness. Maybe some of you have gone through some struggles in life when it comes to fitting in in the body of Christ to where that you say, Mark, I'm not like a stone anymore. I'm like, I, I feel like I've even ground into powder. Paul says, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. I heard some, I heard a preacher say one time that we all have a, a place in the body of Christ. And I think that perhaps is one of the most inaccurate statements that I've ever heard. The truth of what Paul is teaching you and I is this, that we are the body of Christ. That we are Understand that. That's how deep this goes within us. And the mystery that Paul talks about is revealed right before your eyes. In this room and in churches all over the world this morning, in the body of Christ at large, that mystery has been revealed to you. So if God can do that, then why would you limit him in any way of doing the miraculous in your life? That God can take your background and God can take your pedigree and God can take your resume. And through the power of the gospel, He remakes you. He does. And so, from knowing that truth, gives you the power to love others around you when they are difficult to love. It in, empowers you to say in those moments when you're sitting in a Roman prison that the reality of my life is that I'm a prisoner of Christ through His grace and work in my life. Because this is God's plan and I trust Him. So for a moment, would you bow your heads and close your eyes or just sit there, however, po- what kind of posture of prayer you want to take this morning? Those of you who are joining us at home, would you do the same? And take a moment to recall. I don't think we do this enough. to take a trip back to this moment of redemption in your life. Not the moment that you chose Christ because that would have been works, but the moment that He chose you. Recall the change that took place in your life. And you say, but Mark, you don't understand. I still deal with some of the same things. And I'm still struggling in some of the same areas. God never told us this was about perfection, but he always taught us that this is about progress in our lives. But today you're new in Him. You are new in Him. And allow 
the work of the gospel in you to become the fuel that your life runs off of. So, Father, we never forget, God. We never forget what you have done for us. Lord, as we pray together, we take this moment to recall. Because recalling the work of the gospel in our life is the antidote to pride and arrogance, self-sufficiency, and self-reliance. Because, God, we say for this reason, for this reason, that we are your prisoner today. A prisoner of great grace and redemption and mercy. So that we realize that you are working a greater plan within our lives as you did through your servant Paul. So, Father, may we open our hearts and our minds to you. Father, we pray for a sovereign work in our lives. And we pray for a sovereign work in the life of our church and the body of Christ at large. And that work would be based on the gospel bringing us together in all of our differences so God open our hearts to your work in our lives and in the lives of the body of Christ Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. We remember today.